Okay, if I can keep my finger on the right thing, let's do Daniel chapter 3. If you're just joining with us, Daniel is, it's a weird book. It's got a lot of phenomenal events that are taking place, challenging events, exciting events. And what we've talked about in chapter 1 is that Daniel and his friends were taken captive, 605 B.C., taken down to Babylon. There they're put into the employ of the uh, Babylonian government. Several years later, the capital of Jerusalem is destroyed after the third attack that was made against the nation. So in chapter 1, Daniel and his friends are there in Babylon. They're being trained. They're in a three-year training program that is going to be making them Chaldean wise men. And they don't want to eat the food because it's against the law that, there are, that they were grew up, the dietary law of the Old Testament. So they propose, give us a 10-day trial and see if we're not in better shape than the others by eating something that is less than the king's food put before them, but it follows the dietary code. So they're following the word of God as best they can in these surroundings, and God blesses them. They look better than the others, and that's going to be their diet. And they, at the end of chapter 1, they're improving. They're catching the attention of the Babylonian leadership because of their skill set. So in Daniel chapter 2, they're a part of that group now that's, that's being interned and being a part of the wise men, and the king has a dream, recurring dream. And he's bothered by the dream. And so the wise men say they cannot tell him the dream. They cannot give the interpretation. He's going to have them all killed. And Daniel hears about it. And Daniel prays with his friends. God gives them the the dream and the interpretation. They tell about the history of the world empires as it relates to Israel. Okay, in, the re- in that relationship. So it's Middle East world empires. Then we get to chapter 3. Okay, the end of chapter 2 talks about how Daniel and his friends have risen in the eyes of the authorities. And so it's very important that we make sure that we understand what has happened down in Daniel chapter 2, verse 48, okay, where it says, The king made Daniel a great man, gave him many great gifts, made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon, chief of the governors uh, over the, all the wise men. Then Daniel requested of the king, and he set Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel sat at the gate of the, of the king. So all four of these guys are in really, really important spots. So what happens in Daniel chapter 3 as we unfold the story is several different important events. We don't know. Nobody knows, okay? Nobody knows how many years between chapter 2 and chapter 3. The guesstimate by many different scholars is 15 years, maybe 20 years. There are a number who think that it probably was around 586 B.C. And so that year was a very, very important year for Jews. What happened in 586? Anybody remember, this is really a critical date. 605 was the first invasion, Daniel and his friends were taken. 597 was the second invasion, Ezekiel, and a lot of the middle class was taken. What year was the final attack on Jerusalem and the city was destroyed? Hint, hint, hint. 586. So if this is the case, if those scholars are right, this is the year that, ba- that Jerusalem is destroyed, you're a Jew in captivity, and you're home, you get the news that Jerusalem has been totally wiped out. There is no nation, it, that people have been scattered, there's nobody left in the land. So you're thinking, how in the world are we ever going to get home? You're thinking that we are totally um, um, deserted by God Almighty. If that's the case, this story has some really 
real prominent features around that time period in giving those Jews a lot of information. So Daniel and his friends, if this is the case, they're about 15, 20 years in the employ, and they have been in chief positions for well over 12 years. That they have been in chief positions, they've been in government authority probably 15 years by this point. Nebuchadnezzar has this idea that he's going to build this huge statue. The statue is going to be enormous. And we read in the first couple of verses, if you look at it, that he builds this statue, this statue of gold, probably could be wood overlaid with gold. That would be the same idea in the, uh, the original concept. But he has this statue, and he makes this statue, and he has the orders given that are very, very important orders as you go through and read through the text. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold whose height was 90 feet, whose breadth, he says, is six cubits. He set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon, and the king sent together, and it's interesting how he does this, lays this out. He gets the princes, the governors, the captains, the judges, the treasurers, the counselors, the sheriffs, and all the rulers of the provinces. If we understand records right, ancient records, if we understand, he has listed all the different levels of authority and government officials in the ancient Babylon government. We think by those who have made the comparisons that he's covered everybody from international to national down to local leadership. So he's including all those people that he's called together to the dedication, which means this is a big deal, this dedication of this image. And then he repeats it again. He says, then the princes, governors, captains, judges, treasurers, counselors, sheriffs, and all the rulers were gathered together. And so he's bringing everybody together and he's going to give them the order and the command that goes on. He says, they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. I herald cries aloud to you it is commanded, O people, nations, languages, that at what time you hear the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, dulcimer on all kinds of music you fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up whoso falls not down and worships shall the same hour be cast into the midst of the uh, fiery furnace and so he's, he's making the statue out. Here's the question that comes up. Is this a statue made of Nebuchadnezzar or is it a statue of some deity? The text doesn't clarify. Okay, we often think it's a statue of him. Could be. But it also mentions his gods, where later on it says they did not fall down and worship your gods. Either way, if it's a statue of him or it's a statue of some deity, he's got them combined together. And so he, this, this whole concept of what he's doing is worshiping his gods, and he is somehow centerpiece of this whole thing. Okay, and so um, if it's of him, the question comes up, why would he make this huge statue of himself? Because he thinks he's a divine God, yes? That's one answer. Okay, because of the dream that he had here previous, the dream saw him as the what? What was he in the dream? He was the head of gold. Okay, so that could be why he's doing it. The bottom line is, is he an arrogant individual? Yes, he's very arrogant. Okay, and so he's, doing, he's building this huge statue. A couple different tidbits that are mentioned about it. It's large. It's, it's huge. It's from the floor to the peak of the roof of this building. It's huge. 
Okay, it's, uh, it's of gold, like I said, overlaid or solid gold, but it's massive. It's in the plain of Dura. Just so you have information about this, the Dura simply means walled place. There are several Duras that archaeologists have found in inscriptions of ancient Babylon, that there are several places called Dura. So that doesn't mean, okay, we know the exact, except for there is one that's six miles south of the site of ancient Babylon, and at that one that's six miles south, that one has this huge platform that nobody to this day has figured out what this platform is. But this huge platform, 45 feet by 45 feet by 20 feet, it's, and it's flat. It's a pedestal. And so archaeologists are trying to figure out what it could be. Very likely this could have been the platform that was holding this massive statue. And so that's the information we have. We have something that is extremely impressive, something that would catch people's attention, that they would oogle and ogle at, and he makes sure that all the leaders are there and all the different levels which are representing the people. And so he says that you must fall down and you worship. And so somehow in here, he's tying together state and church, state and religion are put together. 11 times worship is brought up. So in this whole thing, it's not just political, there's a religious aspect that he's tying together in that aspect that he's using religious to support his own, his own rule. He's working it through all of his government heads. And so the question that often comes up is, how could Nebuchadnezzar do this after he had said, go back to chapter 2, verse 46. In chapter 2, verse 46, um, we read, Then the king, Nebuchadnezzar, fell upon his face and worshipped Daniel and commanded that they should offer oblation and orders to him. And he, the king answered Daniel, Of a truth it is that your God is a God of the gods, the Lord of the kings, and a revealer of secrets. See you could, uh, that you could reveal the secret. That's what he said. How could he say that and then build this statue? Okay, he's fickle. That's a real good possibility. That he's spiritually fickle. That he's just, he's, this is the way he is. Any other possibilities that would help explain this? How, how many years have transpired? Okay, we've mentioned there could be up to 15 years in between. Okay, do some people shift their positions in 15 years? Okay. Yeah, so we don't know other than this, you know, I wouldn't go back to chapter 2, verse 46, and say he was born again in that verse when he's doing what he's doing in chapter 3. And so he's recognizing, but in his journey of what he's, what he's being uh, told spiritually, again, there's multiple years in between here that have passed. The order is extremely clear. You either bow or you burn. And he's made sure the leaders are going to do this as well. So by bringing the leaders in, and, and I'm just trying to set the scene, I'm not trying to bore you, but this is a big deal that all the leaders are getting together. This is a huge event in Babylonian history under Nebuchadnezzar. That he brings everybody there and he's got this death sentence over it. He brings in the music, the instruments, and the, pain, the punishment is what they're thinking is a very painful punishment, burning somebody to death. And so he's got this all set up. Okay? Does anybody see any similarity to Revelation 13? Do you remember what it is in Revelation 13? The false prophet will build something that is huge. Remember what it is? It's an image of the beast, of Antichrist. And what is everybody required to do? 
to worship at this statue. Which, by the way, what does the false prophet enable the statue to do? To speak and miracles produced from there. And if you don't, if you don't fall down and worship and take the mark at that point before the statue, what happens to you? Okay. Can't buy or sell. And it's basically it's persecution. You've got a death sentence upon you. So there's a lot of similarities that take, that take place that Satan you know, is imposing and encouraging this uh, idolatry and this man worship, Nebuchadnezzar being the first one in that major empires, and then it's going to be repeated again by Antichrist in those last days of the tribulation. So what happens is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they, uh, they don't bow. It makes it very clear in the text. It says that in verse 7, Therefore at a time when all the people heard the sound of the cornet, verse 7, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, and all kinds of music, all the people, the nations, the languages, fell down. Very emphatic, very repetitious comments in this text about everybody else, everybody else, listing them out the way that he does. Wherefore at a time certain Chaldeans came near and accused the Jews, they spake and said to the king, O king, live forever. O thou, O king, had made a decree that every man shall hear the sound, da 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 shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoso falls not down and worship, that he should be cast in the midst of the burning fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not regarded you. They serve not your gods, nor worship the golden image which you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in his rage and fury, commanded to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego then they were brought, uh, these men before the king. So they don't bow down, and it's an obvious reason why. Their, their laws say what? Thou shalt not. Yeah, okay, it's very clear. No, no idol worship. It's very clear in the Old Testament that, uh, that they're not supposed to bow down before any of these idols. And so they know this. They understand this. This is the, one of their first and primary laws in the Ten Commandments even. It was, it was the, you know, there that there's no other gods before the Lord God of Jehovah. And so they're not going to do it. And the, uh, I'm going to move on here. I forget this. They, uh, so what they do is everybody else bows down, but they don't. They refuse to do it. And it's interesting. It strikes me that their refusal to do it isn't this grandstanding this public display of look at us and we're making an issue, we're making it, uh, broadcasting it around that we're not bowing down. How do we know that? It had to be reported by others. It had to be reported by others. So they aren't of the caliber, they aren't of that mindset that says, okay, we're going to let everybody in the world know here's what we're doing or not doing. And so they're, they're in a very tactful way, but in a very, very um, uh, convicting way, in a courageous way. They're not bowing down, but they aren't making this, you know, they're, they're not tweeting it all over. They're not in the newspaper saying this is what we're doing. And so uh, they make sure that that's told. And the king's told by the others. So the king didn't see him not do it. That's obvious. The king has to be reported, but the others report them. They squeal. Now, why would these others report them to the king? What is a possibility, folk? Okay, jealousy. They're jealous. And does this happen multiple times that the other Chaldeans are jealous of Daniel and his friends? That happens multiple times in the story. And so they're jealous. And the bottom line is they're jealous of these foreigners who have been elevated above them. And so they don't like that aspect. And so they're, they're being watched. 
they're being watched through this whole episode. The question that comes up by many individuals is, the most obvious question that comes up is, where's Daniel? Okay, where's Daniel? We don't know. The passage doesn't say there's no information. Remember, he is in charge of all of the governors. We read that in chapter 2. So could he be the one that is sitting back at the palace and keeping everything running while all those other people are gathered together? Okay, that's a possibility. Could he be on diplomatic mission abroad? That's a possibility. We don't know. But obviously, if he had been there and he was in the story, okay, what would he have done? He would have done the same thing as three friends. There's just no doubt about that in any of our minds. So the people who accuse them, and I just find it interesting, when they come and make the accusation, if you notice how it's just, it's proper, I guess some would say, but in verse 9, how when the others come to tell, it's Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You know, let's just kind of butter his, butter his you know, thoughts about himself, and they do it in a very slick way, and they come and they make, they make accusations. Now, what do they charge the men with? It's interesting what they charge them with. They obviously charge them with not bowing down, but is there anything else they charge them with? They're disrespecting the king. They don't respect you. Has there been indication that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have been disrespectful to the king? Other than they didn't obey his command. Have they been arrogant towards the king? Have, have the three men, and go back in the previous chapters, when these men were sitting with situations that were threatening to them, were they respectfully working through the proper chain of command? Yes, they did. When the executioner came to kill them, did they panic against them? Did they attack? Or did they portray respectful and appropriate speech patterns even towards the authorities over them? It's been their consistent pattern. So here it is. They're going to make accusations against them. And so the accusation is accurate that they're disobeying. But, and it's true. They aren't serving your gods. That is true. Okay? This statue somehow is involving uh, serving Babylonian gods, so they want nothing to do with it. But the idea that they didn't regard the king, that they had no respect for the king, that's a false, and that is making it even more so to look like you know, Nebuchadnezzar, they're attacking you personally, okay? And do, do you ever notice that people do this? They, they kind of take, when they want to make somebody look bad, they kind of make it sound like it's a personal attack against the individual, the boss, or whoever. And so the king at this time, if you look at verse 13, it's very clear. The king's emotional state, how do we, what do we read? He's cool, calm, and collected? No, what's the king? It says, Nebuchadnezzar in his rage and fury. Jump down to verse 19. Then was Nebuchadnezzar... Do you, do you have something additional? He's full of fury, okay? And so here the king, the king is taking this as a personal affront. The king is very upset they didn't obey and that they offended him in his mind. And so he's very angry over it. The king then questions these men. It was, we read verse 13, they're commanded to come. They brought these before the king. And verse 14, Nebuchadnezzar spake and said, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, do not you serve my gods nor worship the golden image which I have set up? Now if you be ready that at what time you hear the sound of the cornet and all the different instruments, you fall down and worship the image which I have made, that's good. 
But if you worship not, you shall be cast the same hour into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. And who is your God that shall deliver you out of my hands? Interesting. Interesting. Question. Why does Nebuchadnezzar interview and ask these guys? He's giving them a second chance. Obviously, he's doing that. Why is he personally doing the interview? To give them a second chance, and he's in charge. Any other possibilities? What's that? What do you mean because of Daniel? They were involved in it, right? Because Daniel made clear that my friends and I have prayed and got the vision. Daniel didn't take the credit to himself. He made sure that the king knew his friends were involved. And remember, he asked if they could be elevated. So out of respect for Daniel, is that what you mean? That the king is saying, okay, I need to do this? Okay, there's, there's, uh, there's any other possibilities that you can, can you think of? Could be. Could be, absolutely, absolutely, the history of their testimony. We don't know, but it could be that they're valuable commodities to the king. They've proven themselves, I, I don't think this is a stretch, they've proven themselves to be really good rulers, administrators. That's the impression we get from previous verses, right? That they're very competent, that they excelled above the others. And so the king may want to, because of their value, give them a second chance. Okay, um, it's interesting that he calls them by their personal names, right? Which indicates he he knows these guys. He knows who they are. These aren't just okay. These aren't just some um, excuse the expression some flunkies deep into the seat of the government level. He knows them personally, so there's some personal contact. There's um, it says his visage changes towards them. The, literally, it says his face in the, in the Hebrew. It says his face changed towards him. That's, that's a Hebrew expression that means what? You know, we have different expressions that, go, that are cultural. Red up the room means what? Nobody outside, of the, nobody outside of this area knows what it means. It means to clean up. Okay. When it says in Hebrew in that ancient time, his face changed towards them, what's the idea? His attitude. His attitude. That at one time he was favorable towards them. Now he is... Obviously, they've lost favor that quickly with the king. And so he's talking with them. <clears throat> we don't know. This is one thing that some have researched. Is the king the only one that could judge the government officials? That has been thrown out there as a, as a possibility that nobody else, that any high government official had to go right before the king. That's a possibility. The other possibility is that the king was just no good at delegating and just kind of doing everything himself, which is a, we, we just don't know. We don't know if he's doing this out of personal um, favor to Daniel, out of, I know these guys, I want to give them, I don't want to lose them. We don't know. We don't know. But he does this personal interview with them. And he says some things when he talks with them. It's interesting a couple of his phrases that he uses here. He makes sure that they, you know, he asks, you know, did you really do this? He wants to know, did they really do it? He asks for their personal admission. He offers them a second chance. You know, if you do it right now, if you bow down, we'll play the music, we'll give you a chance. Maybe you just didn't hear the music with everybody else. And so he wants to give him a second chance as if he's trying to spare them um, and keep them. In doing so, he makes this comment that nobody can deliver you from my hand. How does that strike you? 
No God can deliver you from my hand. Isn't that what he says? Okay. What is that? What, what, where does that? Where do, is Nebuchadnezzar putting himself? Okay. Now remember, what has he said 15 years earlier about God? What did he say? There is no other God like your gods. And now, 15 years later, he's saying, no God, including your God, can deliver you out of my hands. Okay, so he is really, really clear. He is, he is really focused on this idea that he's in charge, that he's, you know, there's just no way. And so is this a direct attack on Jehovah without saying Jehovah's name? Okay, it seems to me that, that that's what he's doing. And the men answer, and it's interesting how they respond, and I'm not sure exactly what your translation says, but in mine it says, and I'm using King James, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said, oh, uh, to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer you in this matter. Does somebody have a different translation? We are not careful to answer you in this matter. We have no need to answer you in this matter. Anybody have anything different? We don't need to defend ourselves? Okay. Why do they say that? There are some who say these men were getting as angry at Nebuchadnezzar as Nebuchadnezzar was at them. Okay? Is there other possibilities here? That they weren't showing disrespect and... um, What word do I want to use? Flagrant disregard for the king and his authority. And I don't think they are. What is the other possibility of their, what they mean by that phrase? They're showing faith in God. That's an obvious. What did you say? You already know the answer. I think that's what they're doing. They're saying, we really don't have to explain this anything any further because it's true. We're not going to, exactly. We're not going to give you an excuse. We're not going to explain away why we did what we did. We're not going to, we're not going to, you know, we did what we did because we believe in our God and we're not going to change. I think that's what they're doing in this text is when they're responding is that they in their calmness and in their deliberation, they're not speaking in an angry way or a disrespectful way. They're just very simply saying to them, you know, it, it is what it is. This is what we believe. We are not changing our point of view because, and then they go on, they make the comment that if it be so that our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us from out of your hand. Interesting? Interesting? Did you catch how they answered in verse 17? The king had said, no God can deliver you out of my hand. And what do they say? Our God is able to deliver you, deliver us out of your hand, okay? And so they're making it very clear to the king what their, what their faith is. But if not, if that, you know, if, if it isn't the case, be it known unto you, O king, that we still will not serve your gods nor worship the golden image which you have set up. And so they're very, very clear, okay, if it be so, if, you're, you know, if we're going to be killed for our faith or be cast into the fiery furnace, I should say, our God, and they're not apologizing, they're not buttering this you know, or covering this up, they're not trying to explain it away, they just make very clear they believe their God, despite what the king has said. They believe that he can do it, but he may not do it. He is not obligated to uh, spare them from the fiery furnace. Either way, they're going to serve him no matter what the consequences. 
They're just our faith. This is what we believe. This is what we're going to do. This is the type of faith you and I are supposed to have. And many of you have displayed this, not in a fiery furnace uh, fashion, but in so many other ways in your life that you have done that, had to make that stand. And so the execution of the men, verse 19, a lot of little, little tidbits, facts that are important. Uh, let me throw this out to you. There are a couple authors that try to explain away the fiery furnace. Here's what they said. They said the fiery furnace really wasn't stoked that hot. The intent was just to get them scared, give them some burn marks, brand them. It wasn't really designed to kill them. So he's kind of using it like, I'm going to kill you publicly. I'm going to give you, I'm going to disgrace you before others that you're going to have this brand, this mark, this burn on your body that others will kind of say, you get away from it. And that way I'm going to kill you um, uh, socially. And so it wasn't intended to take away their life. And so that's how come they were spared. Again, that, that, that theological thought is trying to explain away the what? The miracles. Yeah, it's trying to get away from the miracles. What in this text indicates to you that this was not a faulty furnace? Yeah, when they put the people in, what happened to the, uh, to the special ops force? Because he says his mightiest men... Look at the text, that he commands his mightiest men to take them, bound them in clothing, extra clothing. Why? Why does he bind them in extra clothing? Yeah, you got it. And then he bounds them with rope. Why do they bind them with rope? That's an obvious. Okay, and they put them in there. What happens to the special ops forces when they try to put them in the furnace? They're killed. Okay, why does the author give us that detail? Probably knowing that there's going to be skeptics. Okay, and so that little tidbit tells us, what about the furnace? Yeah, yeah, it's right. Think this through. If you, if you, the king, uh, what, what else does the king say here about this? He is really enraged. He's angry. What shows his anger besides the statement? What does he want the furnace to be? How does he want it conducted? Seven times hotter. Okay. Why does he want it seven times hotter? He wants them to be cremains. He wants, he wants them to be done. Okay. If, it, if you want them to really suffer, you know, and you're venting towards them, would you make it hotter? Why not? You, you want them to suffer Longer and linger, so you kind of take it down. Why is he, you know, bind them, put them there, get the best men? What's it telling you about the king? He's angry. He is really ticked. You know, nobody in this room would do that. Nobody in anger does something irrational. None of us in this room are like that. Ha, 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 ha. Okay. But the king is really enraged. That's the best word we can use. So he orders them executed. And by the way, it says that it had to be done right away. And so and he's, he's losing total control of his emotions. And we understand then the setting. All of this gives us explanation about the background information of what's going on. And uh, so you, you have all this little detail that's important detail that gives you, uh, gives you some input into it. And that it's done in urgency. The executioners are killed, you know. Well, it's, it's really a waste of good soldiery, you know, some of his special forces. It says that when the men were, it talks about they fell down into the furnace. Here's the way that many understand that the furnace was more of this dome-shaped. 
type thing. There was a spot on the top that you could feed it or at the side, there was an opening at the side. And so that would explain, if that's the case, that they were dropped from the top, from above, fell down into the furnace, and it's not a conflict uh, like some say, well, it, it, you know, if they were pushed in, they, they, even if they were pushed in, they would have fell down because uh, they're bound. But there's, people will try to explain away in some of the weirdest ways. And so what happens is Nebuchadnezzar sees. And so it tells us how they get in there. And it says in verse 21, these men were bound. Uh, The king's commandment was urgent. And they're put into the hot flame. And the men are consumed, verse 22. And verse 23, they fell down in the midst of it. And Nebuchadnezzar, the king, is astonished, rose up in haste and said, Did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? And they said, True. He answered and said, Lo, I see four men who are loose, verse 25, walking in the fire, have no hurt, and the form of them is being like, what do you have in your Bible? Okay, so it's some type of divine character by his visage uh, is what he is understanding that is happening in this case. And so if you were there, just let's just throw this out. If you, um, if you were there and you were watching this, you're one, of the, you're one of the other government officials. And you're seeing this. You're standing next to the king. What would you think? I better get out of here. Okay. I guess it makes a difference how hard-hearted you are, yes? But if you are of any superstitious caliber, which most of those people were, what would go through your mind? What's that? He's not the top dog? Yeah, Nebuchadnezzar, obviously. That's who you mean, right. Would it impress you? Would you try to say, this is a joke? Would you jaw hanging? Let, let Let me throw it. Now, this is the important people in this whole story. If you were a Jew... And you heard this report filter out of the palace in the next couple days. And you were a Jew living in captivity. And you have just heard the latest news you got from family was what happened back home? Jerusalem is destroyed. And all of a sudden you hear at the palace, you hear what happened out on the parade ground that three leading Jews were thrown in a fire furnace And everyone saw this, and everyone saw there was a fourth character with them, like the son of son of uh, of a divine being, and they came out of the. What would you think? What's that? God has not forgotten us. Somebody. Okay. Glimmer of hope. Anything else? Would that be your sense? That, that, you know. Our God is still powerful? You know, that maybe something's going on here? You have to remember that this is happening not in just the context of give lessons for all of history, but it's giving lessons for what group of people in particular? The Jews in captivity. Did they need to be reassured that God is still in control? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Because they are being overwhelmed by circumstances. By the, and again, the circumstances that they created. Does that make sense? Yeah, it was chastisement. But they're being overwhelmed. Do you, do you 
do you ever feel overwhelmed by your circumstances and say, is God still around? Theologically, you say, yeah, yeah, I know he's here. But is he here with me? And so it's very, very important how this thing plays out and the information that comes out. And, and there, if, if, if you're a Jew reading this text, all that little tidbit of information about the soldiers dying, the king's wrath, would that be important to know that no matter how, how vengeful this king got, no, how, no matter how pompous this king got, he wasn't in control. See, see why all those little details are important? Because they add on to the idea that this was really, really a phenomenal working of God in the midst. The, so the three men are released. I, I didn't catch this, and I don't know if it's significant. But it's interesting, verse 26. I found it interesting going through it this time. Then Nebuchadnezzar comes near to the mouth of the burning fiery furnace, and he said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, servants of the Most High God, come forth. Come out. He says it twice. In the original, it's two commands. Why? Why is it important? Why is it there that Nebuchadnezzar says, come out? He's still in charge from a human point of view, correct? They are under execution. They are under death sentence. Who can pardon them? From a human point of view. Only the king. Only the king. So what is he doing when he says come out? He's, he's releasing them. Okay, so politically, this is it's an important statement. Practically speaking, what does it tell you about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and their circumstances? How long could they stay in the furnace and be okay? They could stay there. And they didn't come out of their own accord. I think this is, there's a little in you know, just uh, that whole suggestion. They're there. They are not threatened. They are not anxious, if we can put it that way, to get out of this fiery furnace. They're walking about. They're not seeking an escape because they're doing fine in the midst of this. And it doesn't look like they're trying to you know, push their way out. And the king has to say, come on out. Now, we had one young man in our church that several years ago, he went into the different military forces and the others would joke about it, how when they, some of you have been there, they have had the different tests and they do the gas mask and they put you in the hut and then they release the, um, the, yeah, the gas. And this one young man, then they say, you know, take off the mask, whatever. This young man stayed in, stayed in, stayed in stayed in and it wasn't bothering him and so finally the uh, you the the sergeant in charge had to go and say get out okay because and his comment afterwards was i didn't find it real bad at all i thought i could stay in there quite a while in this gas filled spot uh that's kind of like what's happening here is that these guys are going to have to be told to get out so he tells them to get out tells them to come forth and so he gives them and notice the text how the author wants you and me to catch this. He goes on, they come forth, and then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego come forth out of the midst of the fire. 
Verse 27, we have heard this already twice in the text. The princes, the governors, the captains, the king's counselors being gathered together. So now all these people have been gathered together. He wants us to understand that all of them saw these men upon whose bodies the fire had no power, nor was a hair of their heads singed, nor the smell of smoke. Why is it important that all of them saw this? What's that? Okay, it's an undisputed testimony. Many witnesses. Okay? That's obviously one of the good answers. Any other reason? Okay, so they're, you know, they're seeing it for themselves. They're not, gonna, they're not going to afterwards be able to attack it. Seeing is believing. What else do we know about these guys and their attitude towards the three men? They don't like them, but is it clear that these three guys aren't people that are... You don't want to mess with these guys. Okay, these guys, in all of our contrivances, these guys have some special protection. So in many ways, you know, with the witnesses, they're exa- they're, uh, these three men are uh, they're elevated before their jealous enemies. And so now all of these leaders, all of these leaders, and I'm going to say it again... All of these leaders are aware of the power of Jehovah. That is critical mass information. Because if they just conquered Jerusalem, remember ancient thinking. Might makes right. The God who, who defeats the others is the most powerful God. Jehovah has been defeated, according to all of the Babylonians. Jehovah has been beaten with the fall of Jerusalem. What has Jehovah just proven to them? He's not been beaten. He can beat even who? Who did, Mike, you mention it just a few minutes ago? The, the guy who thought he was the most powerful person, and was, the most powerful person, in, who, he got beat. He got beat on a one-on-one by these guys through their God. And so the king responds. Nebuchadnezzar speaks. Now talk about a change of face. Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who hath sent his angel and delivered his servants that trusted in him. Change the king's word. That's a huge admission. Right? Yeah, think, because what had he said before? No man can deliver you out of my hand. Okay. So he says they have, that have uh, changed my words, yielded their bodies, that they may not serve nor worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree. Every people, nation, language, which speaks anything against or amiss the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces and their houses shall be made a dunghill. Because there is no other god than, that can deliver after this sword. And he promotes Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. What a, what a huge statement that he makes at this point. So he speaks positively, tells them that basically you can worship, do whatever you want. And he's basically forbidding any type of anti-Semitism that's going to go on. This is huge. Okay? Huge, huge, huge that takes place at this moment. What an amazing story. Now, let, let's pull some thoughts for a few minutes. Okay? If you're a Jew living in captivity, and you hear this story, now put yourself in their sandals. What singular lessons might this show you? You've mentioned a couple already. Important lessons that would help you in your captivity. God is not what? God has not forgotten us. Anything else? I would even back up a little bit before that. You know, 
God is not dead. Right? Okay. Anything else? Our God can do the impossible? Great. Anything else? Okay. So he's, exalt, he's, he's making it clear that God is the owner. From, from a king's perspective, who considers himself to be divine, that's an amazing statement. Uh, what does this tell, story tell you about Jewish rules? You're a Jew living in captivity. What does this tell you about your, Jew, your Jewish rules? Yeah, we need to keep serving the Lord. We need to keep serving the Lord in captivity. I, I put him down this way, okay? Although Jerusalem has fallen, our God has not. God has not forsaken us. God is able to do the miraculous for his children. God honors faith and obedience. Isn't that critical for them to remember at that moment? The idea we need to obey his commands no matter where we are. Can we add any other no matter? What's that? <coughs> what? Oops, sorry. No matter what the circumstances, no matter what the cost, no matter what others do. Those are important lessons for the Jews. Now, they're important lessons for us. But for the Jews reading this, this is really important for them reading it while in captivity. So you think from that point of view, this, this lesson. You know, we get excited when the missionaries come and they tell us stories about something that God was kind of amazing working in. This was what they needed. That's the type of story. Now, we can expand it, and let's do it for just a couple minutes, okay? Here's some major truths that stand out for us. God's people will be confronted with idols of this world time and again. That's true. And when you and I say idols, we typically think of statues that have big, fat bellies. But are there other forms of idolatry here in America? Yeah, what is the major form of idolatry that Colossians talks about? Covetousness, right? Yeah, things. Okay, so we're going we're gonna to be confronted with idolatry all the time. Just like these men were in captivity. They face, and you know why I find this really ironic? Okay, remember the setting of this story. They were in captivity because they're idolatry. And during this captivity, what is God going to do? He's going to purge them of their idolatry. When the Jews go back, they don't have the same problem with idols that they had years before. So God is purging the idolatry out of them. He's getting rid of it. And what smacks them in the face? A temptation to go back to idolatry. And so it's a way that, seems that, that it seems to work. And the setting is that you and I, we're going to run into the same type of thing. Let me make a second statement. God's people will be criticized by the people of this world when you do what's right. That's true. That's true. You will be criticized when you do what's right. Has it ever happened to you? You try to do what's right. You try to be ethical. You try to be loyal to your vows. You try to be upright and honest and give a good day's work. You're going to be criticized. You're going to be attacked by those things. You're going to be accused. And sometimes those accusations, those accusations are false. They are exaggerated, but it's going to happen. You're going to be attacked in that way. Let's give a third thought. God's people will be challenged to give in to the ideas and idols of this world. And I say this in, in uh, reference to the first one I gave you because after you take a stand, you're going to be challenged again. It doesn't always work that you said, well, they know my, they know my standards. I've told them my standards. Even though you told them your standards, what might they want to do? 
They want, yeah, you're going to be challenged. You're going to be challenged. And, 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 you know, sometimes the hardest challenges come from others who claim to be believers. And they want you to go with them into some of the garbage. And so they're, they're being challenged, okay? Number four, God's people must be courageous in the face of dangers that will come from this world. You have to be courageous. Courageous to do what you know the Word of God says. And again, I remind you, as I said, many times in this text, there's five different times that he talks about all the people, all the people, all the people, all the people. And trying to make sure that we understand that there was peer pressure here. There's peer pressure. You and I need to make sure we say, okay, let's do what's right no matter what the circumstances. We have to courageously do what's right. We have to courageously refuse to worship anyone or anything but the Lord. We have to courageously trust in God's purposes no matter what the immediate consequences. Even if we go into the fiery furnace, we have to do what's right. We have to do what's right. We must face whatever happens courageously. Okay, uh, there's going to be consequences. I might get fired. Okay, might get fired. Face the firing courageously without bellying up, without becoming bitter. Even the consequences, face in a courageous way, in a, in a way that honors the Lord. And we could add to it this whole concept, always do right no matter who is asking you. Okay, whether it be somebody powerful, wealthy, always do what's right no matter who is asking you to do otherwise. Wherever you're at, Wherever you're at, okay, you're far from home, whatever, do what's right. We could add to there, do what's right no matter what others do. Because everybody else bowed. Everybody else gave in at this moment. There's, um, I'll come back to this another time. Okay, there's, you do what's right no matter what the threats are, whatever the circumstances are. You do what's right, you do what's right no matter how many times you're asked. You do what's right. The bottom line is this. We do what's right... Because God wants us to, and then God rewards us for doing what's right. My final fifth comment here is going to be that we can always be confident of God's presence. Confident of God's presence when we are in any type of situation. That the Lord was with them. He didn't take them away from the fiery furnace, but he was with them in the fiery furnace. We know that God's assistance is with us when we do what's right.